One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Have you heard about a B2B e commerce company that aims to connect and upgrade the technological interaction of business and consumers? Unbelievable, right? But with Obanana Corp, everything can turn from impossible to possible. With their quick and reliable online marketplace business solutions for better customer satisfaction and bringing premium products and business partnerships. My favorite feature for easy browsing is their market hub section with construction, electronics, logistics, shipyard services, real estate, travel and tours, food and beverage, apparel, agriculture, and general services. I'm sure that this all-in-one seamless platform is something where you couldn't ask for more. Be updated and visit their social media accounts, ObananaPH, for Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and TikTok. Discover more and be more with ObananaCorp. Podcast Network Asia. The new normal is just another name for abnormal. What people want is the old normal. So if you can get back to the old normal, that's desirable. If you can get back to meeting our friends without mass eating in restaurants, that's great. We're not looking for a world where you constantly hide behind a plastic screen. Ultimately, what I want is to see us without a mask next year. If we don't have a mask next year, then we know we made it. So our job really is to get as many friends, family members, loved ones to survive this pandemic. Try to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Well, that's the strongest way for us to see each other again on the other side. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon from here in the Philippines or from all over the world. And welcome to my podcast, the RJ Ledesma Podcast. So happy to have you guys here right now to listen to some entrepreneurial words of wisdom. And over here in the RJ Ledesma Podcast, I interview the country's pioneering business personalities and entrepreneurs to learn more about how they think about business, what are their success secrets in business, and can we hack those success secrets How have they innovated their businesses during this pandemic? But more importantly, what are the opportunities that they see emerging during this new normal and even the next normal? Now, is there a business personality or entrepreneur that you would like me to interview here on the podcast? Please do let me know. I would love to listen and to learn from them. Tonight, very special episode, just like all my special episodes. But for this particular individual, you know, we are in the same Viber group. I meet with him almost very regularly and we you know we formed such a strong group during uh, this pandemic which is the restaurant owners of the Philippines. I'm very proud to have him here on the show finally uh, to pick his brains now and he's the president of the restaurant owners of the Philippines also known as Resto PH. You may have seen him in the news many times right now as he bats for helping reopen the economy safely at the same time making sure that health protocols are in place for the restaurant industry. But at the same time, concurrently as he heads the uh, press, the, heads the Resto PH group, 
He is also the person who brought into the country mango tree, Genki Sushi, Senrio, and Kureji, Philippines. Um, he's been a great voice for the food and beverage industry. Somebody I really look up to during these trying times. I've learned so much from him during this pandemic. Hopefully, all of you will get to learn from him as well. Please welcome on my program, Mr. Eric Tang. President Hi, Eric. Roger. Hello. Thanks Good so evening, RJ. Thanks so much for joining us, Mr. Eric Tang. Before everything else, here we have Victor Tan. Good evening, bro, RJ, and my intelligent batchmate, <laughs> Eric Tang. So you will see here today just how intelligent Mr. Eric Tang here is, president of Resto PH. And to Lance Luis Caviteño, good evening, RJ, my virtual mentor. Lance, thank you always so much for tuning in and listening. Hopefully, one by one, you're picking up together great entrepreneurial insights to grow your own business. Now, Eric, Resto PH has been doing a lot of great work for the Philippines. You're getting a snapshot, actually, of what the restaurant industry is like all over the country. Can you just give us an idea? Uh, what's happening to the restaurant industry first here, I guess, in the NCR? And how's it doing across the rest of the country? I'm presuming that with Alert Level 3 and Alert Level 2 coming up, that things are looking brighter than it has been in the past year and a half. Yeah, well, of course, the restaurants went through a huge upheaval with the, the global pandemic. And sadly, a lot of our peers have already uh, closed shop. But I'm happy that so many still you know, are in operations to things look brighter. We have 90% of Metro Manila's eligible population vaccinated already. So that's a game changer. And uh, that might be one of the reasons, which I believe, for the low daily cases and what would probably get us to alert level two very soon. As for the outside, I mean, outside Metro Manila, there are areas where vaccination is as low as under 15 or 16%. So it would take some time for areas like those to get back to normal. But I was out and about today. I, I went around the malls and the restaurants. It seems, it, it feels almost normal. So I'm very happy. And when you say almost normal, no, what's the current situation? Because I mean, for, for, for me and for you, we're monitoring daily, not only the cases, but we're also monitoring what the IATF and the LGU say about who can dine in restaurants, how many can dine in restaurants, who can dine outdoors. Can you give us a clearer picture of, of exactly where we are here right now and uh, what are the rules for the vaccinated and the unvaccinated when it comes to dining? Well, currently at Alert Level 3 for Metro Manila, we enjoy 30% indoor dining for the vaccinated and we get an extra 10% if an establishment has safety seal. Uh, safety seal is certified by uh, each LGU. And then if you belong to a city with over 70% uh, a vaccinated population, you get an additional 20%. So effectively, indoor, we enjoy 60% capacity. That's not a lot, but it's a lot better than a few months back. Add to that, we also have outdoor uh, seating capacity that, that, you know, that can accommodate a lot more. But what's different is I see less apprehension, less among the vaccinated. Because previously, even when you're vaccinated, you tend to stay home. But right. now I see more vaccinated people engaging because I see them in the restaurants. Especially now that curfew has been lifted, I think, and, and with transportation now uh, a lot for up to 70%, people's uh, mindset is a little bit more upbeat towards the last two months of the year. So, you know, I'm hopeful that we're already beginning to feel that Christmas season, as, in late as it is in November, but still early by global standards, we're trying to get back to that Christmas celebration season already. What are you expecting in terms of us moving into 
I mean, we are already holiday season, technically. Bear months were already holiday. But then moving on to the last two months, you know, what do you see? Is it going to be a great uptick in restaurants, in restaurant sales? Is it going to change from almost all delivery to a combination of delivery and dining for the restaurants? What, what are you looking at uh, in the next two months? Well, that's a good question. All I can see is when we observe what's happening in other cities, as dining went up, it doesn't necessarily mean that takeaway and uh, delivery sales would, would go down. Sometimes they, they grow in parallel. So it depends on the habits of our consumers in Manila. If I mean, we order food all the time. It, admittedly, it's not the same as getting restaurant quality food in the restaurant. So sometimes we get tired eating at home. We've been locked up for over... 19 months. So when the opportunity comes where we can go out and, and have a date, that's certainly more interesting to do it in a nice restaurant, right? Exactly. And like in our personal experience, in, uh, of course, my, my brand Mercato Central, we just opened up uh, our markets in uh, Eastwood and McKinley. And we, you know, we were very happy at the uh, number of people coming over. But, you know, we were also, we had to be very stringent right now with the security protocols because it seems like right now, at least coming from our perspective, people really want to go out, especially um, if they're vaccinated more than yeah. in the past. And, and we're, yeah. we're really feeling it for the restaurants right now. Is it the same also for the indoor restaurants? Yeah. I mean, you look at consumer behavior. Look, Just look at what's, hap what's happened in the past few weeks with the Dolomite Beach. People just need to go out and find something, something not in their home, something different, no? So in the restaurant, it, it's the same way. We've seen an increase in food traffic. We've seen an increase in average check. And we've seen an increase in family get-togethers. Because before, during the pandemic, you can't go with your entire family. Sometimes it's just people in a party. But now you see multi-generation. So grandparents with parents with adult children. They now uh, go and celebrate their weekends in restaurants. Very interesting how how things have started to, to change for the restaurant industry in such a in su I, to me in such a short period of time. How things are seem to be exponentially exploding in terms of people at least coming back because of the vaccination. Uh, but then I want to go back a bit more to what we were experiencing during the crisis, if you don't mind, Eric. No. Like you yeah. said, unfortunately, many restaurants did close down during this period. Uh, what has been so far the the mortality rate, if you can, uh, you know, from the past from the past year and a half? And then, was there a particular peak to that mortality, like it happened during the first, the second, or the third? I wish I have data. I I wish I can answer you in an intelligent fashion. But all I can do right now is go out and observe. Uh, it's different throughout Metro Manila and throughout the country. Not. All restaurants suffer in the same difficulty if they're in standalone or in a mall setting. Not all malls behave uh, the same way or had the same results. In some malls where I'm located in, where we had more than 30 tenants before, we are only six now. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So in some malls, like the big malls, you can hardly see any restaurants close down because as soon as they close, somebody else needs their space anyway to get going. And then, of course, there's the CBD area. So many work-from-home arrangements now that people don't work in your offices. So you don't see a lot of restaurants operating near or that cater to the, the office crowd. Then there's the school district, the university belt. What happened to the Carinderia with no face-to-face -face school? Then there are the tourist centers. No? So the, there are a lot of things going on. It's such a very diverse and a different, a dynamic situation. That what's going on in Metro Manila where we see things improving, it's not necessarily the same thing outside of Metro Manila just half hour out. But definitely I've seen friends go to 
Boracay, for example, and they're quite happy because it feels normal. They go out and enjoy it. It feels like the pandemic is over. That's what they're saying. So it's certainly a very, you know, a very relieving mindset to have when you can go out and feel maybe it's already the worst is over. You know? Maybe the worst is already over. Yeah, and we have a comment here from Bea Escuna. Good evening, RJ, and uh, way to go, bro, Eric. Thing, Eric, a lot of fans coming up over here and then showing their support. Eric, having said that, I realize right now as I listen to you, you know, it we we can't just say make a blanket statement that X closed because you know business was bad. It 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 was really a matter of location. It was a matter of the kind of clientele that they had, right? I mean, all these factors came into play. But on top of that, one, Eric, I mean. Anecdotally speaking, what did you see? Did you see any common denominators across who closed down and what were they? I mean, in terms of financial, sales, marketing. And for those that survived, did you also happen to see certain common denominators that kept afloat amidst this crisis? Because I think that's going to be very insightful for many of the smaller players and even the larger food MSMEs or micro and small businesses. Let's start off with the, the bad news, Muna. Why do you think you saw that many of those that had to close down? Well, well, you think that a pandemic like this would hit the small players first, but actually there are also a lot of big restaurants that had to close down because operating costs would be quite high when you don't have when you're not allowed to do business and serve our customers because we really don't make a lot of money doing deliveries. We, as restaurants, we need people to come and sit in our chairs and consume there for for the restaurant model to work. But to your second question, the common denominator that I've seen so far is support either from their landlords, support from their suppliers, support from their employees, support from local and national government. When we see them, we we see a a light at the end of the tunnel where we don't have to drown during this pandemic. We just keep paddling so that we can reach that end. And we're very thankful for, it's actually quite unique as I understand it, that the Philippine landlords, like the the big malls, like SM, Ayala, Robinson's, uh, uh, Mega World, they supported the tenants by not charging rent. That's not the case in other countries. They were charged full rent. So, of course, wow. those restaurants would have to close sooner. They're not going to wait one more month. You know, They need to hold on to as much cash as possible. But thankfully for our situation in the Philippines, we have these supportive uh, landlords that kept us afloat. And, of course, I know that people are very frustrated with a lot of the quarantine restrictions and alert level, but truth in our dealings with our national government agencies and, and local government people, they've been very supportive in trying to accommodate whatever they can to keep us afloat. You know, so it's really about helping each other out. That's how we come the common denominator. That's what re- that's where rest of PH came in. We're here to try to work together and help each other survive. Yeah. And I want to talk about Resto PH uh, in a bit because it's such an interesting way of how the organization came together almost organically amidst this crisis. No? But stepping back, I understand. So what you're seeing really here is that it was support was the common denominator. I just wanted to just drill into this a bit more. Aside from support, were there certain business models which didn't work out during the crisis? I mean, or, or certain, you know, was it fast food or quick service dining uh, or, or let's say the type of food that they had that made it untenable or it could not sustain because of this pandemic? And were there some that, you know, their models were actually pretty good for this pandemic? Interesting. Reading some research papers that says during this pandemic, concepts such as pizza, for example, would do very well because they're a very portable uh, product. 
they're easy to deliver, easy to consume at home, easy to consume any, anywhere. But then there are also pizza restaurants that close down. So mm-hmm. it, it's not a guarantee. So what's that magic formula? I suppose if you're doing very well before the pandemic, you have a greater chance to survive. And if you've, did, if you've done all the work that needed to be done, from getting good quality product to good quality service and have a great make a whole package, you know, presented and people know that about you, they will keep supporting it because they know who you are and what you stand for. But unfortunately, there were a lot of new players like myself in, in some of my brands who started some brands just before the pandemic where the public had no opportunity to experience certain products and services of certain brands yet. So that goes down to timing. There's no, but there's no one to blame about that. So we just have to learn to understand that we, you know, if if you think it's worthwhile to keep going and endure the short-term loss to get that long-term gain, then you know that boils down to people's resiliency or their their hardiness, but also to their cash reserves if they can still afford the losses. So, so many. I mean, we're in the restaurant page. We talk a lot to other restaurateurs. The stories are very different. The stories are not singular. So the solution is not black and white. Some will work for me, it won't work for others. And but definitely, people are just trying to figure out day by day what can get them through that week. And if they're lucky enough, they stitch together the weeks into months. Then okay, now we're here. That's right. You talked about that. You know, you, you needed some time for like any brand has to be- develop brand equity or brand recognition when they launch the restaurants, right? Having said that, you know. One of the phenomenons that happened during this time, and not just here in the Philippines, is you know internationally, is that you know people were creating you know home-based online brands which became popular, or you even have brands that are just purely meant for delivery only that were selling online. So how does he, how do you think that they were able to survive, or that they were able to some of them some of them thrived, some of them were flashes in the pan, they were good eventually, then then they dropped. Was it because they're very good at Better at marketing. I mean, the toy mind lang They're better at marketing, or their business models really meant to be delivery only as such. Because of that, they were able to have a different business model, which makes them survive amidst this pandemic. Well, what what are your thoughts on this? I, I think it's got to do with appeal, right? It's like any brand, any person, you appeal to another person, and you remember that person's name immediately if that person appeals to you. So the same with the product, the same with the service, the same with the brand. I've had a lot of friends go into the food business and I'm very happy that they're successful. I don't see the home business, home food business as a competitor of restaurants. I think we should support them because they're the future restaurateurs. They're the ones who's going to be uh, important in reviving uh, our restaurant. And a lot of interesting products came about that nobody thought would, you know, would be, would be hot sellers. One of them, for example, is Sushi Bake. Mm-hmm, yes. I've never had a sushi bake before, and I have <laughs> Japanese brands. I've gone to sushi, and I asked my principal, "Can you develop a sushi bake?" What's that? They've never heard of a sushi bake before. <laughs> so our staff came up with some sort of recipes and some test products, and we sent it to Japan, and they they tested it out, and guess what? They liked it. Wow. Ooh, sushi bake, that's good. So they decided that uh, we must have some sushi bake and gang sushi. So we do. So that's one way where even an international brand like Yankee Sushi can learn 
from home-based businesses. That's We need to learn from everyone. We cannot be snobs and say that we know better than everybody else. We really have to try to find, I mean, to experiment on things that actually appeal to us in the first place. Yeah, it's sort of like that, that's one of those silver linings that we discovered during this time. I mean, not, aside from the emergence of all these home-based entrepreneurs, but all these different recipes, the sushi bakes, the they had their uh, the ube cheese pandesals that came out yeah. during those times, or even Dalgona coffee, all these different things which emerged. You know? And having said that, when we were in the midst of this crisis, there are a lot of, lot of businesses which, which tried to, I guess you say, pivot or innovate their business model. And, you know, I, I try to avoid the word pivot nowadays because it's so, such a, has been used so often and abused. But then things like, what does, what things change do you think for the restaurant industry fundamentally? Because like for me, just to share my thoughts, is number one is that they had to offer more. They had to go to delivery and they had to, some of them had to bite the bullet to, to accept delivery platforms to be on. They had to develop better package. I mean, for me, those are the major things that they had to do. What did you see? What were the fundamental changes that, that that happened during this time in the industry that happened for good or not so good for the restaurant industry? Well, restaurants come in different shapes and sizes, big ones, big names with famous chefs, two small mom and pops. The one thing about this pandemic, with the use of your phone, everyone has an even playing field. So the big brands appeal to you equally as mo a mom and pop uh, concept right. or mom and pop uh, palabo. But suddenly you discover, wow, this great palabo, can you keep ordering that? So that's one great opportunity because I think it's inherent in, in all of us that we're constantly looking for the new. We're constantly looking for that new thing. And our phone is our greatest tool right now in discovering new things, new experiences, because we can't go out and, and get it ourselves. We need our phone to bring it to us. And when we, we do that and we enjoy it, then you have repetition. At first, you get the trial, then you get the repetition, and then onwards but after a while if you don't improve yourself people will find the next new and you become the old new and that phone is again your biggest problem because you have to constantly deal with a very intense competition for new ideas and we're challenging ourselves right now with our restaurants we cannot say that we know what we're doing that's one that's one folly i think for experienced restaurateurs we can't think of ourselves not that we're experts. There are no experts in post-pandemic recovery where we're, everybody's going through this at the same time. So right. it's a matter, I'm looking right now at other restaurants, hey, who's working out after all this? When the movie's open by November 10th, it's going to do well. It, you really need to keep your eyes open, your ears, your nose, all your senses, and try to observe everything. And then once you think you know the answer, you have to stop again and rethink if that might not be the case. So you have to constantly explore, constantly, constantly observe any insights that we might have missed before because we are experienced restaurateurs. So it's I was reading the book of, of, of Adam Grant Originals. It's sort of like you're stuck to your own rules of how a restaurant should be run successfully pre-pandemic. Yeah. You can't apply those same sort of rules right now. Like you can't say I'm yeah. too snobby that I can't have delivery. That, I mean that some people were that, that's an intentional strategy in their part, but now they've they got of course to adjust. Or I I you know I my cost is too high. I can't do delivery. But now you have to do delivery. Is that right? Right. Like you can't fight a new war with a, the past war strategy, right? So, you know, when you go to a different stage, you have to rethink everything again. What made us survive through the pandemic will not allow us to survive during recovery. 
So we need to rethink that again. It's going to be a different ball game again. So we need to up our game. We need to look at what's going on in New York, in Paris, in London, in Hong Kong, and see what actually works, not just in the Philippines, because people now are so so deprived mm-hmm. of contact with the international world, with, with international products, that we really need to keep looking out, not just keep not just pay attention inwards. And try to find new ideas and try to find new ways to, to reinvent ourselves. Yeah. Having said that, are you seeing any you know best practice recovery strategies right now? I know it's still very it's still very fresh, right? I mean, it's it's yeah. even difficult for us, like for us to say. But are you seeing any anything that's been working for restaurants, whether here or or abroad, that you think? Maybe other restaurants should sit up and take notice of. I have friends uh, who own restaurants in other countries, and I think I, I dare say this: after a pandemic is declared over, for example, for their cities or their countries, people seek out what they miss that they've been deprived of for the last eighteen, nineteen months. But after that, when they have their, when they've satisfied themselves uh, with what they miss, na, na. Na, then they have to look again for something new. So. The, immediately after they open, the restaurateurs saying, oh, we're good now. Uh, customers are coming back. Then after one month, why is sales going down? Because they're going to other restaurants that they haven't tried before. So it's a matter of, like I said, I, I, I wish I know the winning formula. If we can it, brand it, sell it, that'd be great. But I, I really think that it's all about learning this time. It's not about answering. It's more like, it's more about asking questions. Ask the right questions, ask the wrong questions, but just keep asking questions because none of us are experts right now. Exactly. Victor Tan, your backpack wants to add to your comment. He said, we have to rewrite now our business models as to be suitable nowadays or what we call new normal, especially during this time of recovery. I couldn't agree with you more, Victor. That's really how, how we've got to uh, perceive things right now. Having said that, let's go back a bit more, Eric, and how uh, rest of ph was formed and how it's been helping back for the restaurant industry here in the Philippines. Because, uh, well, let, let me, uh, allow me to give us some perspective. No? When, when the rest of PH group came out, actually it, came, it evolved from, from Bounce Back, which is, actually, you know, which is actually a group which yeah. I helped together with Jason De La Rosa, who's the founder. Yeah. And it just happened to be that, you know, we were doing a lot of talks on Bounce Back and I happened to know, I knew a lot of restaurateurs. I was inviting them to talk because at that time, like you said, we were, there was no formula. So the only way for us to figure out was that Let's bring all these minds together and, and see if you've got something interesting to say. And uh, a common denominator across all of us uh, at that time, March or April, was how do we pay the rent if everything is closed down? So all of a sudden, all yeah. these people who used to be competitors and fierce ones at that, who never met each other, who've never met each other in the first place, finally, they've, they've been a part of finally said, let's forget about the competition. we got to work together now to, to come together. And that's basically... The genesis Muna, of uh, Resto PH. But then moving forward from there, Eric, what happened? How did the Resto PH group uh, come together? And oh. what was its original purpose? What was it supposed to serve originally? Presume to understand the how it actually became a successful organization. But I have this amusing story I tell myself. It's like everybody, I mean, you're in a room full of your own competitors, as you said, and suddenly somebody switched off the lights. And then you will say, then parang the place is haunted, may mumu. You grab onto the next guy. Eh? You grab onto the hand that you can decide. You, you don't care who that person is, but you want to hold on to somebody because natatakot na tayong lahat eh. 
Uh-huh. So I think that was it. We're all fearful of something that we don't understand. And that's even more scary because we don't understand what we're afraid of. We don't understand this thing called COVID and how dangerous this can be. And sometimes it, we, we, our imagination drives us crazy. It's mm. not that kind of an animal. We really have to, to understand it first before we can navigate through the difficulties. And as you said, I've always said this, I've said this many times, from distant competitors, we became close friends. That's very true. We now get together regularly. We enjoy each other's companies. We share each other's stories. And not only that, we help each other out. When people ask me for suppliers, when I ask them for tips, we we help each other. There are no secrets. There are no saying, hey, I'm not going to tell them a trade secret. You know, everybody helps each other out. So it's a very... It, it, I, maybe it's a Bayanian spirit in us, and and that's beautiful, no? Yeah. And that might be unique to the Philippines because I certainly didn't see that in other countries. Maybe they did help each other, but I don't think in the way we did that in a very friendly and and close family way. Like we suddenly belong to the same tribe. Exactly, and the way that I think of it is that it, it's not we're not actually competing with each other. We're trying to build the market more, more than anything else, right? I mean, that's how I perceive things right now because nowadays we, we can share information that we were not ready to share before and it benefits right. all of us, like yeah. rental rental rates or good <laughs> locations. I mean, these are, are good trends or, or the, you know, what's, what is guy charging you for this one and what's he charging you for this one? Now, all of a sudden, wala na, di ba? I mean, yeah. we're actually helping each other, di ba, Eric? Initially, I remember the, the discussion was quite, angry if you remember the initial discussions the the discourse was quite angry oh. i think people were looking for people to blame or people to you know to to pit as our enemy or whatever and i i don't i don't i didn't like that part at the beginning so i said if resto page is going to be successful we can't think of landlords as the enemy we can't think of you know whatever agencies out there as the enemy we really have we really have to offer ourselves to help people we have to ask how we can, what we can do to help. And initially, we asked for meetings and audiences with our landlords. And I know that uh, I, I can share this now. At that time, they were hesitant to have meetings with us. This, this was <laughs> yes, yes, I remember. <laughs> yeah, they were so concerned about what they were going to say. But what was the first thing that came out of our mouths when we met them? What can we do to help? That was what we asked. We didn't put the, the onus of recovery on them. We ask how we can be of service because we're all in the same boat. And the landlords understood that it's better to hold on to tenants and not let them close because really, after all, you don't know how long this will take at the time. You didn't know it's going to take more than a year. Exactly, and so exactly. how, how long will they need to support the tenants so that they can cross over to the other side, to the other side of difficulty and get to recovery stage? And now they have a paying tenant again. So... That's what I'm saying. I'm glad that the, the the landlords had that vision, that long view in terms of recovery. It's not just about the short-term rent collection. And I think in many um, cases, the landlords that insist on collecting rent lost a lot of tenants. Exactly. I, I like the comment here of Francesca Silvestre Cruz. Yes, love the dark room analogy uh, <laughs> that you threw out over there, Karina. I, I love it too because I just realized it long right now. I mean, so we've got to put all together. Uh, over here to get by, and, and this yeah. is the thing, Eric. I, what I'm not, what I am not so clear on is really when the group tried to come together. How how did you become like the head of uh, Resto Peace? Was this a de facto thing, or people could see the le- your leadership qualities, 
Or did you say, ako yan. I'm just asking, how, how did it go about? Because Corinne yeah. is over here watching us as well. She's, she's commenting, but I'll read her comment later on. <laughs> but uh, how, how did it come together that you, that you, because this was a difficult time to actually lead an organization, then I'm worried about my own business. president. In all honesty, I'm the accidental president. I fell into it. It wasn't intentional. The first place was when we were having the initial discourse, there was no direction about what we can do together. Mm-hmm. And I felt it's good if we want to form ourselves into uh, a group, we must have a mission. We must have a vision. So I crafted a mission statement and a vision statement and I presented to you guys. I believe you were also there. Mm-hmm. And had a view of that mission and vision statement. So at least we had a direction. And the next part, I asked that if we're going to be doing, this has to be a discourse body, dialogue body with the pertinent or the relevant uh, government agencies or the local government agencies. Because who do they talk to when it comes to restaurant? There's nobody representing us. So this has to be a professionalized body. In the type wedding, Labanan, we ha- really have to represent the goodwill or the, the family of restaurateurs when we talk to them, that we have their best interests in mind, that we're not cannibals or predators trying to get at each other's neck. So I asked, I remember we had this dinner at Wolfgang and I asked, I think we need to have an election so we'll know who are the people that government can talk to. And I just asked that we have an election. I didn't intend that I'm the president, but so, you know. <laughs> I, I like what uh, Corinne Castaneda of House of Wagyu, one of the officers also as well of, of Rest of Peach had to say, Corinne says over here, Eric is too humble. He's selflessly moved for Resto PH and gave it much direction, brought people together and talked to everyone we needed to talk to. And, and I strongly agree also that Eric was able to accomplish all that. But before, we were just talking to the landlords. Now, you're the resource person for Resto PH to talk to Joey Concepcion, to talk to Octa, to talk to, talk to all these different people. I mean, if I think about it right now, I can't believe how far the organization has come, Eric. It's, it's, I'm just in the middle of the road and all the jeepneys and the buses are going by and hello, hi, and talk, I'm a rest of PH, you know, and they want to talk to me. That's all it is. I didn't, I'm not an expert in restaurant industry. There are a lot more qualified people out there. So I was just there to offer my time and, and help with the little that I know. And yes, it's true that I talk to a lot of restaurant uh, owners because I need to consult with them. I need to, to find out what their problems uh, were, are, and will be. I need to understand what can possibly work for a group because talking to individuals versus setting a direction for a group is quite different. Yeah. Corinne, for example, that's one of the secret weapons of uh, Resto PH. Exactly, I agree. Her, Hi, Corinne. Uh, I, I call her Super C. She's the one who does all the heavy lifting. And when I'm confused about something, I go, hey, Corinne. <laughs> and then she goes, she's always there to help. You know? So apart from her, there's there's Stella, there's Abba Napa, there's Philip Moran, you know, there's Raymond, Raymond uh, Magdaloyo, yes. there's Oye Forrest, you, uh, and then there Gallego. are a lot of advisors, yeah. Raton del Gallego. Then there are a lot of people who are there as advisors, like Mr. Ricky D, Mr. Chele, Chef Chele, Chele. Oh, that's right. uh, or Albert, Chef Albert Alpenka, oh. yeah, so, and Margarita Forrest. So we try to get inputs from these giants of the industry. And we're just instruments in how we can assemble everybody's you know, inputs and try to push that forward, try to push that in terms of asking for certain things from government that would help our survival. At the time, it was all about survival. Uh, 
Are you currently in the process of building your own business or you are already a big business and you're aiming to grow bigger? Whether you're a micro or macro business, I think I have just the most life-changing platform for you. And when I say life-changing, I'm talking about Obanana Corp. They're currently seeking merchant partners and interested customers to experience their excellent service and premium products. For more information, visit their social media accounts, ObananaPH, for Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and TikTok. Together with their wide merchant benefits and key feature benefits, come and level up with Obanana Corp. Now, if you think about it, Eric, I mean, the, the fact that you get asked a lot to talk on behalf of Resto PH or that there's, it, has, it is now an organization of some influence must mean that the size and the scale of what you represent for the restaurant must be pretty big. I mean, I mean, whether as a multiplier effect of the economy or the number of people employed here. Can you just give us an idea of the scale of what is the Philippine restaurant industry like? Well, let's talk about restaurant in the first place. It's one of the, when you travel, one of the top three things you do when you travel is eat. Mm-hmm. So that's always in the agenda. You shop for shoes maybe once every few months or once a year, but you eat several times a day. So you think about food, you know, every few hours of the day. And for the for a restaurant, for an F&B industry that is vital to people's everyday sustenance, source of sustenance, to be in that industry where we have we suffered, we are one of the industries that suffered the worst sales loss, the greatest sales loss, and the greatest employment loss, where we occupy the prime real estate in any CBD or tourist areas. Think about it. It's very difficult to find good restaurants in far off places because restaurateurs are willing to pay prime rental rates to be in the right location. That's right. To be in every street corner if you can be, you know. So and we are important for tourism. We are important for the supply chain. I've shared this so many times and I just want to repeat it. My apologies for constantly uh, repeating this thing. Initially when the restaurant closed down for two months plus, one of the first groups that suffered were the farmers, because especially the vegetable farmers. Because you can always freeze meat, but you can't freeze vegetables. Once That's the right. farmers harvest and there's nobody to buy, it goes into the rubbish bin. So the problem with, with the consumer base for that produce of the farmer, the Philippine farmers, is so big because we have a menu. Whether we sell it or not, whether the people order it or not, we buy vegetables from our farmers. So once we shut down, where do they sell their vegetables? just gets thrown out. Now, how do they get back to the next planting season? Would they still want to do that or they're going to wait it out? So now your supply, you know, suffers. And once they think, oh, it's getting better, they're going to plant again. And then guess what? There's another lockdown. And restaurants close down again. And that puts them into greater trouble. So we affect supply chain. We affect real estate. We affect tourism. We affect employment. We affect so many things that I didn't even realize it being involved with the restaurant industry for the last 10 years, Mm. not until now. I didn't know that it was so important to that ecosystem of consumption. Exactly, exactly. Like what my wife says, Vanessa, you know, you know, we run Mercato Central and it's a, it's a, it's a business, but at the same time, it's really an advocacy for us to open these alfresco open air markets because unlike less, I mean, we all 
play our part in the ecosystem of FMB, right? We take those who don't really have, you know, they're not restaurant-ready employees, diba? And these are people who are casual workers. And when they get employed, and every time we open up a market with 30 vendors, we're actually getting employment for 300 people. I mean, yes. that, that, that's what we just, you know, and that's what blew my mind. Parang we've got such a big responsibility to the community, if we think about it. And we represent the country, right? In some ways, you, you go visit a country because you say, I want to try the food there. I want to go to this place because the food's good. That's how it works. And then real estate follows and everything else follows. You remember people were talking about Lugao is not essential. That kind of oh. that oh. came, that blew out. You know. I've always said that restaurant, every job, every food item is essential because the, the number of people you hire, that one person can be the sole breadwinner in their family. Oh, exactly, right? exactly. Oh. That, that meager paycheck would have to pay for meals, medical supplies, whatever their needs are, because there really is nothing out there. So every job is essential. Every single job feeds a whole family now. So we cannot just dismiss an industry or a job as non-essential. And you cannot recover looking at the macro. You have to work one job at a time, one business at a time, one day at a time. Then get through the week, then get through the month, but plan for that month and plan for that quarter so that we know what we know that we're heading in the right direction. At least we hope that we know we're heading in that right direction. But if we start to if we start to dismiss, you know, the small details, the small things that's unimportant, we're missing the big picture. It's all about the small detail when it comes to the restaurant industry, when it comes to the economy. It's the smallest job. It's the smallest guy getting from home to work that matters the most today. Multiply that by millions. Exactly. And having said that, Eric, I, I want to take one step back right now and talk about the restaurant business. We've been talking with your role as steward for the industry, but I, I, you know, I've always been curious about your own background. I mean, you're running several restaurants here right now, and many of them are international franchise brands. And I want to ask you actually about, about these brands, no? Is that you know? I'm looking at you, and you know, I can make some assumptions about you when I when I look at you. Una, una, as a Filipino Chinese, you know, many of them are taught to you know instead of um, working for somebody, you know, or being a career person, put up your own business, you know, or, or or you were growing up in a very entrepreneurial family. See, what's your secret origin? How did you how did you start off in in doing rest in doing the restaurant business? Was that your first business uh, at the start? No, actually, my family, nobody told me to be a businessman. We're not being told not to do whatever we want to do. I wouldn't say we're not a traditional family or a traditional family. It's not a stereotype in our, in my case. I just wanted to be a businessman from a very early age because my role models, my grandfather, my uncles, my father, they were business people. So when you sit around them during dinner time, you hear them talk about business and you understand it's very no two days are alike. This, the problems are probably the same. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not enough money, but then there's no two ways of, no, no same way of getting the same solution. So going to university, I've always said that I took up business management because I said one day I want to be a businessman and you know deal with my own difficulties. And I started not as a restaurateur. My first business was as a plywood distributor. And that business didn't do very well because at that time we were, suffering through Asian currency crisis. Before Asian currency crisis, there was some difficulty in our economy. So nobody was building. There was a construction slump. So I came in there at the wrong time. And then I, for some reason, I went in the toilet making business. Okay. Actually, so you failed. I mean, 
what what people don't realize is that you know failure is as an entrepreneur failure is part and parcel of our DNA, right? I mean, I don't know any successful entrepreneur who hasn't failed. Is that right? Sadly, I wish my story would be different, but I'm part <laughs> of that, you know failure population. And sadly, but you do learn a lot. You do, you do learn. Why did I do? Why why did I do it that way? I could have done it differently, but sometimes lessons are learned after. The failures that I got. So then I went to the toilet business. Then my wife said, "You're not making enough money with that. Let's do something else." And at the time, she did something called the 99 peso store. And she oh, that, was, that was you guys. The 99 peso store was you guys. Yeah, that was my wife started the 99 peso store, and that was interesting. And I said, "Okay." She wanted me to join also the 99 peso. I said, "If we want to do this, we have to grow it because one store probably won't be enough." And at our peak, I think we have we had over 35 stores, 99 peso store. That did very well for a time because, but at the time we didn't think it was going to be a long-term thing. But from the 99 peso store, we came up with a different brand called Maldita, which still is around. So it's a clothing brand. And oh, again, so you guys from you guys from Maldita, pala. Are you a fashionista, yeah. Eric, or uh... me? No. Oh. <laughs> well, I look like a fashionista. <laughs> I'm an anti-fashionista, but. My my wife is actually the person who likes to deal with customer service, with merchandise, with design. My interest was actually more in marketing, systems, organization, trying to create an organization out of very little resources until we can stand on our feet. And unfortunately, with retail, it came with a lot of challenges because around the late 2008, 2009, we have an influx of so many foreign brands that we were feeling a lot of the, you know, the challenges in retail already. And so we were saying that maybe we should do other businesses. The restaurant was something that came accidentally because we, I had a consultant at the time. She was seated beside my desk. Her desk was beside mine. She received a phone call from the Thai embassy. For some reason, asking her if she's interested in a restaurant business. And she didn't know, you know, why her number was called. But she handed the phone to me. And I said, why not? I, my mother's from Thailand, so I oh, was you, interested. You, is your mom Thai, Eric? My, mom, my mom's Thai. She's Chinese, but she was born in Thailand. Half my family. Oh, well. Thai. oh interesting. So, can, you, can, you, can, you, can you speak Thai as well? Nam song sandwiches, one, two, three, cup and cup. I can't have a conversation, no way. No, it's very difficult for me. Okay, so, so we went to this place where they wanted me to meet a gentleman named Trevor. And he said his brand was Mango Tree. And I called my wife. It just so happens that Mango Tree is my wife's favorite restaurant when she goes to Thailand. And uh, we weren't interested in numbers. We didn't know what to ask. But I remember asking him just a basic question. I, I said, how do you keep the Thai taste for the Philippines? Apparently, the other applicants that he spoke to were asking him how to change the Thai taste for Philippine market, which was my opposite thing because I know Thai food. It's different from what I was having here. So I really wanted to keep that Thai taste for the Philippines. If, even if it's too spicy, I really want it that way because I need to keep that authenticity there. No? So long story short, we hit it off as friends with, with Trevor. And we, we created Mango Tree Philippines, and we're very happy with the brand. And from there, other brands came forward. Some worked out, some didn't work out. So tell me about um, <laughs> how did you start? You know, what I'm curious about is, if you don't mind, no? and I love the background, but there's a lot of lessons to be unpacked here. Like, first of all, I want to go to Maldita. If you don't mind, I'll go back a bit to Maldita. Retail is a very tough industry, especially fashion. And you said yeah. your wife is good at the retail, but you're good at the marketing. At that time, 
how did you make Maldita stand out from the rest? And how are you able to expand to 30 stores at a time? I mean, that for me, that's quite an achievement. And yeah, not, they, not, not, not franchise stores, but these were all owned by you. Some were right? franchise. Some were okay. franchise. For 99 pesos store, we had some franchisees in uh, the north and some in Jensen, for example. But basically, our growth was all organic because retail has always been a cash flow business. But I'm, I want to correct you on something. I didn't say I was good in marketing. I... I barely struggle, you know, making my own breakfast. So I'm not good at anything at all. But it's really something that, that's interesting. And at that time when we created Maldita, there was not a lot of local fashion along the lines that what my wife liked and sort of what I liked, which is uh, short dresses with cleavage, low backs. Okay. Not a lot of people were telling that. So what they call the little black dress. So I remember, you know what, why don't we do the little black dress thing? Let's call it the Maldita little black dress. And I had fun doing that actually with my wife. I designed a few things myself. Part oh. of my resume. So it's part of the challenge. And as you said, retail is challenging. People tell me restaurant is difficult, but knowing the two, I would dare say that retail was more difficult than restaurant. Oh, and I came yeah. the restaurant business actually with a retail mentality. It's retail, you need to forecast six months ahead what their customer wants to buy in the right size, shape, price, design, you know, colors. How are you going to do that six months from now? How, how will I know what we want to wear in April? But that's exactly what retail forecasters and merchandisers are supposed to do. They need to forecast what you might want to consume or buy six months down the line. In the restaurant, I have a chicken in the fridge. You order, I fry it for you. You know, I fry chicken. It's as easy as that. What you remind me of is actually our one of our officers also in Rest of Page, which is Abba Napa. Abba, our VP for external, was actually came from a retail background before opening up her, her chain of restaurants, the Moment Group, no? But going back, so that's how you grew it. Tell me about mango tree, because like you said, that you were a newbie uh, in doing mango tree. That, that was a bit scary, especially to get the restaurant business and the capital that was put into it. Tell me about, about you know, when, when you were starting it off, how was it like for you? I mean, it, it must have been quite a, a roller coaster ride for you when you started off. I, I dare tell you that, with all honesty, I now know that I wasn't a very bright person. I wasn't smart enough to be scared, and I should have been, because knowing what I know now, I would have probably given it a few more years of thought. But I have supportive partners, and I have a wonderful wife who's very detail-oriented, Imelda, and it's really her that's carried 99% of the ballgame. But what I, what I wanted to was actually, I looked at what the Thais were doing with their brand and how they're organized and how they operated. And I know that for the Philippines, I had to change that. I can't have the same management model for the Philippines or have the same model for London or Tokyo for the Philippines. I really had to create a new management culture for Mango Tree for the Philippines. And I think we did it right. Probably I give myself a B for having that culture done right in the first place. And that allowed it to grow. We made a lot of mistakes, but I dare say we made the right mistakes. We didn't make a lot of the dumb mistakes that would uh, force us to fold. So we made mistakes that we can learn from and move forward, you know, forward with. But the quality is always what I respect with our principals. When they give me a hard time about quality, I know I have the right brand. When it's so easy for them to say yes to me, I know that something's not right because quality is very important and I'm not supposed to understand quality 
And even to this day, I would tell you that I would trust their annoying insistence on quality, their constant badgering for quality, their constant nitpicking. It annoys me a lot, but I really have to have that to understand how hard we have to work to get the quality. Eric, you were telling me earlier on that uh, you know you had a different management style. What, what did you see what was different? I mean, what do you see from the other countries? You said it would work there, but wouldn't work here. What was a unique style, if you don't mind getting into it? Because people can learn from that sort of insight that you gained on. Was there a unique style to manage here in the Philippines? It's just the way we live. It's just the way we we conduct ourselves. We're more family-oriented. We're more group-oriented. You, a Filipino working in a cruise ship, would find it difficult to adjust to a culture where when you're wrong, you're wrong. And therefore, you get chewed out. But in the Philippines, when you're wrong, you have a support group. People try to help you get right. People try to help you get better. So initially, the people, we hired people who would work well together who would help each other. We don't look for people who exactly were uh, a great chef, you know, the ex- experienced kitchen staff or service staff. That wasn't what we started with. We started with people who we find likable because they have that certain charm, certain appeal, and we find them trainable. We find them eager to learn, eager to please, eager to be a good host. And that was the service part. As far as the the kitchen is concerned, as far as the, the, the production is concerned, we just have to be insistent on following recipes. My Thai principal, I, at, the begin, at the very beginning, we said we wanted to Thai chefs. I was surprised to learn from our principal that says, trust us, not all Thais can cook, which I, I don't want to offend anyone, but that's what he told me. So 99% of our staff is Filipino. And he's right. I'm very happy with our Philippine staff. We train them in Thailand. And then when they get back, they're very good in execution because they went to Thailand to learn a certain way. And when they come back, they do it every day. They, they remember the taste, they remember the profile, and they try to execute um, that level every day. You know? So that's a part being Filipino. Like I say, we, we understand how we work together. So you point zero one percent of Thai sa inyo is your wife. No, actually, it's uh, my dessert staff and my mom. <laughs> and then Eric, I, I find this story very interesting. In terms of expanding the restaurant, was that was the basically the, the investment you had made to grow that was that also when you grew Mango Tree was that also coming from Mango Tree's original uh, business unit or did you bring in investors to grow the business? How did you expand? The original partnership, there are only five of us. So in the beginning, business was good. So we were able to fund our own projects. But then we stumbled with a few. So of course, my partners wouldn't be, ha- be very happy anymore. But then we also carried the next brand, which was Genki Sushi. And now we're happy again. So that allowed a lot of a good relationship in keeping the brand growing. Because now our partners know that you can't grow restaurants without money, of course. And you can't just depend on the income from your restaurant, your successful restaurant, we need to keep reinvesting in the brand. And eventually we added more partners. So now we're opening one more store in Mall of Asia for Genki Sushi. We're opening one, two, three more mango tree. And we have a new brand called Tung Lok from Singapore, which is a Chinese restaurant opening soon. And when you're choosing these new restaurants, how do you know what niche to play in? Because it seems to me that your strategy so far has been instead of creating my own concept, which you could also have done, 
I would rather bring in an international franchise. Is that because you know they already have a certain quality that you could not just follow them and bring over here instead of having to, I guess, reinvent things from scratch? What, what what's your take in the in the F and B industry with regard to either bringing in a brand or creating your own? Well, I've been I've seen brands that do well in other countries, and you think if you bring it to Manila, it will work, and that that wasn't the case, or you would find other brands who you didn't think would do very well in Manila, but suddenly they're the hottest thing. So it's very difficult to observe. We go there several, I mean, first of all, I enjoy the, the product and my kids, my family, my friends, if they enjoy the experience in a certain restaurant, we certainly, that has a leg up in getting that for the Philippines. But then to understand if that brand actually appeals to the local market, oh, that's very difficult for me to, to really uh, be an expert at. So I won't say that I'm an expert. Really, I have to be very careful and allow for mistakes to happen, not be too gutsy in the initial uh, phase of investment and allow, you know, allow setbacks, you know, allow those kind of setbacks not to bankrupt us, but something that we can adjust from later. So how do you, how do you choose restaurants then? What's your criteria for bringing in a new restaurant versus, let's say, expanding to another one of your well, let's say versus putting up another mango tree, you choose to bring in an, another concept to the country. How does the decision-making process come, okay. come about? First part, I said for mango tree, for Thai food, I like Thai food. When I go to Bangkok and I go even to other countries, I, when I look out for the Thai restaurants, there are certain Thai restaurants I like, certain ones I said, these are not Thai. That's not Thai food at all. So I know that I have that sort of that taste in, in me of what I like for Thai food. And I have to say, when I tried mango tree, uh, I have to say for me, that was the best Thai experience I've had because the service, everything, they really want to make that of a higher level. I had other brands because I am, I'm, I'm an early riser. I always look for a breakfast restaurant. And I said, I'll bring in a breakfast brand, thinking that there are a lot of people like me who wake up early, you know, for breakfast. Didn't work. <laughs> Finally, very few people wake up early. <laughs> just me so that didn't work out but then Genki Sushi came uh, I like sushi but not really you know a connoisseur of sushi but eventually going through the Genki Sushi process I have to say I now can tell the difference between good and real good sushi and very bad sushi at least you know and I'm not an expert but I, I look at sushi as something that's underserved in the Philippines there seems to be an opportunity what do you call that blue water uh, blue ocean it's a blue ocean, right. ocean scenario for sushi. So I think my partners also agreed. My wife agreed. If they all agreed, I, I feel better. But, you know, when they don't agree, I don't have a vote. So then I, I attempted to create some of my own brands because I think, hey, I have enough experience under my belt. Why not try something? That doesn't always work out too. So sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. You move forward. Uh, but then again, I look at, my friends who are big restaurateurs in other countries, it's the same case. They win some, they lose more. You know? So it, it's, nice. I might be par for the course. Exactly. Uh, over here, really great comment from Jameson Riano saying, uh, very inspiring. Thanks so much. Uh, can you be sure the comment there, Clark? Very inspiring over there. And uh, from Philip Poran of Karamia, and also part of Resto PH. Hi, Eric and RJ. Really interesting. And this is a great question because, you know, I've had 
partners in the past too. Some worked out, some didn't work out. What have you learned in terms of choosing the right partners for your restaurants? Are they still the same partners? Have the summer departed your company both professionally and personally? What, what's it like? What so in the end is your criteria? You still have the same partners and you expect tensions to come. That's what I discovered. No matter how good your friends or family members are, when they're partners in business, eventually tensions, conflicts will happen. And you just need to be able to get past that. I wasn't mature enough to be able to survive a lot of the early difficulties, but I'm glad we're still intact. So you have to have some kind of partner where you have that alignment of vision. And if it would be helpful if you both have the same core competency, might be different perspectives, but the same core competency. Most of my partners are not restaurant business people. So of course, when we're explaining restaurant terminologies, it's not very easy for them to comprehend. But when I'm around other restaurateurs or my co-franchisees, then we understand each other perfectly well because we're, mm. we, we, we are going through the same boat. And they're having the same issues as well when their investors are not restaurateurs. And we sort of come up with that conclusion. Yeah, you need to have sort of similar, some sort of similarity to gel together. Got that. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much, Phil, for the question. Are you, our conversation has gone longer than I expected, and I'm very happy with it. I wish we could go even another hour. But you know, as we start wrapping up this uh, conversation, Eric, I just wanted to ask you, as you were seeing us emerge from this pandemic, and in general, you're seeing trends in food, trends in technology. What do you think are the emerging opportunities that are coming out in the F&B industry? Not necessarily in food per se. It can be in food allied services or in supplies, what do you see opportunities where entrepreneurs still have a chance to enter into? Well, I try to look at other countries as a, a guidebook, as a roadmap. What's happening in China? Some of the mango trees in China, they're doing beyond their pre-pandemic or Genki Sushi in, in other countries in Hong Kong, for example. They're doing quite well already. So it's not a long-term thing. No matter how long it took us to this point, it's not a forever problem. And we can... Come, I think for me, to be honest, and please, I hope I'm right. I hope I'm not wrong, at least. Uh, I think the worst is behind us. I think we should start looking at uh, a post-pandemic year. I think we should start looking at recovery, start to rebuild our lives again. No? So what's emerging? Survival, recovery. It's like we went through a war, and after a war, there's always opportunities, like the Second World I wasn't around during the Second World War, but after the Second <laughs> World War, of course, the global economy grew because they were deprived of normalcy for five, six years. So after that, there was a boom period. I hope that can happen with this pandemic because certainly when I see restaurant industry or other industry in other countries like travel, the day after the mass mandates were lifted, I think in the United States, they had 1.8 million bookings for flights in one day. So in other restaurants or in other cities where there are no mass mandates anymore, that means there are no capacity limitations. People go into the restaurants again. They were full. They were enjoying dates. They were having fun with friends again. So it's just, oh, I always challenge this. The new normal is just another name for abnormal. What people want is the old normal. So if you can get back to the old normal, that's desirable. If we can get back to meeting our friends without mass eating in restaurants, that's great. That just brings us back to the old world again. We're not looking for a world where we constantly hide behind a plastic screen. Ultimately, what I want is to see us without a mask next year. And if we don't have a mask next year, then we know we made it. So our job really is to get as many friends and 
family members, loved ones to survive this pandemic, not to get sick. And if they do get sick, to survive it. I try to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Well, that's the strongest way for us to see each other again on the other side. Looking forward to getting together again with the board uh, of Rest2PH and having a good drink with all of you and a good steak at the same time. And having said all this, Eric, a lot of great insights that we've had throughout this talk. And I'm sure many people are so appreciative and inspired by what you've shared here so far. And, and you've got such a great breadth and depth of entrepreneurship, wisdom. You failed, you succeeded, you failed again and succeeded again. So, you know, if you were to distill some of that one and you were passing on your entrepreneurial advice to, to other people, what, what advice would you like to share with them? The key insights that you've gained that you, you think would help other people grow and survive their businesses as well? Well, first, you better find a banker who's willing to let you fail because right now they're not going to be happy listening to restaurants failing a lot. But <laughs> I'm just being as honest as I can be. I'm not trying to tell you that I'm an expert that, you know, is immune to failing. I probably... You know, after I shut off my computer, probably fall down again. So it's not something that's that's uncommon. We, we nobody, like I said, nobody's an expert. We don't know we're going through tomorrow the same as everybody else, not knowing what's going to happen. So each day is like that anyway. So we might as well keep moving forward and keep understanding that we're going to make mistakes down the line. But what doesn't kill us, and when we don't kill other people, that is actually the best thing, right? That's right, exactly. Eric, thank, thank you so much for, for sharing your insights with us. Even my producer over here was saying, great interview, very insightful. And that's saying a lot because he's been through so many of our interviews here in the past. Clark, thanks so much uh, for that comment over there. And Eric, just as a final word, for all those uh, restaurateurs or restaurant owners who are looking, uh, if they're trying to find out a way of how they can uh, join Rest2PH and what are the benefits they can get out of being a member of Rest2PH? Maybe you can share with us right now. So number one, if they want to join Rest2PH, where do they go? What, what website do they visit? ECS is just go to Facebook, just look up Rest2PH and then we'll talk to you. We don't, we're not snobs. <laughs> we'll talk to anyone. Just ask a question, we'll be there and we'll direct you to Miss Corinne who handles all the membership. We're an easy bunch to, to you know, get along with. We're, we're not difficult exactly. people. We're not bad people. Exactly, exactly. And lastly, what, what have they? What can they gain as being Resto PH members? First, I'd say the most important, friendship. The next time the lights go out again, you want to grab onto the next person beside you. You want to know you have friends there. So that's what Resto PH is all about. We're there for everyone. We're there to help. We're here to help. We're not experts. We're here just trying to learn together and be stronger together. So... If that's what you want, if you're looking for camaraderie, if you're looking for community, if you're looking for family, welcome. We are Rest of PH. Yeah. As part of Rest of PH, I'm also looking forward to the new members to come over. A lot of great mentors that you can get over here in Rest of PH. And at least, pag may mumu sa kwarto, may kasama ka. May ka, may kahawa ka dyan, di ba? Uh, just yeah. one more thing. Philip Moran, our VP for Intel, is posting the... Uh, the cell phone number of our executive director of Resto PH, oh, yes. Karen Caballero. Can we just flash that number on screen again? Karen Caballero, 0917-531-0301. Again, that's 0917-531-0301. By the way, that's a picture of Philip Moran with his lovely wife, my cousin Carby Luxin. Just to let you know, Amici's got some new products. Check out their spinach artichoke pizza, their spicy chicken buffalo pizza, their truffle mushroom pasta and their sausage and pesto pasta. Why do I know all this one? Because they sent me some products in the house. I've enjoyed them all. Again, 
Thank you so much, Mr. Eric Tang, and we will see you guys in the next podcast of the RJ Ledesma podcast. Guys, enjoy the rest of the evening. See you soon. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.